Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I think we would be hard-pressed to find someone who could soberly and honestly look at the physical and emotional and financial and social and political turmoil that the world has been going through for the last 15 months or so and call it a slight momentary affliction. And yet, that is exactly what St. Paul calls it in our epistle reading this morning. St. Paul's scope, of course, is much wider than just what we have been going through. He takes in the whole human condition, all the physical and emotional and financial and social and political turmoil of the ages, all the entrenched and systematic sin of individuals and institutions, all the tragic brokenness of every aspect of life, all the unending pain and unflinching suffering that has been visited upon the human race by itself and by forces beyond its control from the beginning of time, and he describes it in words that we might use to describe a mosquito bite or an annoying conversation, a slight momentary affliction. How can St. Paul do this? Well, it's not that he's simply callous. His life and his letters give ample evidence of an abiding concern and compassion for people who suffer in every way, but especially spiritually. And it's not that he's simply unacquainted with suffering. Again, his life and his letters give us ample evidence of the intense struggles that he had to endure. In fact, just before our reading today in 2 Corinthians, he has just gotten through a catalog of all the ways he has suffered for the people he has come to serve. I have been afflicted in every way, he writes, so that what Jesus has done may be made visible to you. St. Paul is happy to suffer anything so long as his suffering helps people realize the release from suffering that is offered only by Jesus. And so he can do this. And he can call all human suffering a slight momentary affliction. Precisely because of what Jesus has offered. It's not that he thinks suffering is small. It's that he knows how great the gift of God is. That God in Christ is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That by its sheer magnitude will dwarf anything that we have to suffer in this life. From the perspective of that glory, anything we have faced in this world will seem like the memory of a mosquito bite, a slight momentary affliction, barely worth mentioning. Now that all sounds very nice, but what about now? What about the sin and the brokenness and the pain and the suffering we are forced to live through now? Are we called just to grin and bear it? Just to depend on pie-in-the-sky notions to get us through? 
Of course not. God has not left us comfortless. He has not left us to cross our fingers and wish for a better day. He has acted and is acting to achieve his desired end, that eternal weight of glory for us and for all creation. It will come to pass. All will be more than restored. God's glory will reign supreme. It is on an unstoppable, if invisible, march through the whole created order. God's ends will be made a reality. And what's more, his means for achieving those ends is not force. It's not condemnation or punishment or destruction. It is always and only grace. Now when you preach grace, it can get you into trouble. We all do, after all, really love to have a bit of something to do, a standard to measure by, something to contribute, a way to earn some credit. But grace subverts all that. Grace tells us that there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of this mess. So God has done everything. When Jesus preached and enacted that grace, they accused him of being insane. And they told him he had a demon. And even his family became quite concerned. But nevertheless, that grace is how God will achieve the ends of his glory, setting right all the sin and brokenness and pain and suffering in this world. Now grace does not mean dismissing sin and brokenness. It does not mean saying, I'm okay, you're okay, and none of this really matters. Just the opposite. Grace says, I'm not okay, and you're not okay, and really both of us are rather quite helpless. But God loves us anyway, and has acted on our behalf to do what needed to be done, to forgive our sins, and to transform our brokenness into glory. And glory does not mean dismissing pain and suffering. Glory is not saying, well, just deal with it for now. And it's definitely not saying, well, your suffering is imaginary. Glory is saying that your pain and your suffering is so real that God himself has stepped in to deal with it. That it is immense and beyond anything you can handle. But it's no match for God. That it may do its worst now but it will not have the final word because God has determined that the final word is glory. We do indeed live in a world that has been stolen by sin and brokenness and taken captive by pain and suffering. But their hold on us is only temporary. There comes a day when we shall surely see how slight and momentary they really were. Because our God in Christ has broken into this world and he has bound those strong men, sin and brokenness, pain and suffering and all the rest. And even now by his Holy Spirit, he is plundering their house and casting them out. And he will not be stopped. 
So what does that leave for us to do? Well, on one hand, not much. In fact, precisely nothing. The good news of grace and the hope of glory is good for that reason. God has done everything because we can do nothing. Yet on the other hand, we are called to do much, not by our own power, but by God's. We, as the people who know God's grace, are empowered by that grace to be the means of that grace out in the world. And that will look like doing things. It will look like speaking and acting and even suffering in ways that make the grace of God visible to those who need to see it most. Which is everyone. We are called to be the sacramental presence of Christ in the world. Just as the bread of the Eucharist is the sacramental presence of Christ here. And the bread certainly does no striving to make that happen. The work is all God's. And by that work, he is changing everything. Grace and the hope of glory, not sin and brokenness, not pain and suffering, can and must be our fundamental realities as the people of God in this place because they are God's fundamental realities. Now that means that we cannot presume to know what form grace will take in our lives or what the implications of glory will be on our present or our eternal future. God knows those things, not us. And so we must always be wary of allowing our personal expectations or our cultural assumptions to bind how we experience and how we proclaim grace and the hope of glory to ourselves and to the world. The grace and the glory that we treasure and share are not ours. They're not anyone's. They're not our cultures or any cultures. They're God's alone, which means what we can know about them is that they will always surprise us, that they will often subvert us, and that they will be more than we could ever ask or imagine, and that nothing, no sin or brokenness or pain or suffering or even death itself, will ultimately frustrate them in the end. God's grace will triumph in our lives and in our world. It will, with or without us, but I hope with us, extend more and more to all people. Renew all day by day, even as we appear to be wasting away. Until that eternal weight of the glory of our God and of his Christ fills all in all, beyond all measure, and forever. And so, we do not lose heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.